I was on top of the world. Having done the necessary work on myself to heal from past relationships, I had just finished my degree program, had a great career, and had also just returned home from taking my kids on a Disneyland vacation when a high-functioning meth addict charmed her way into my world and threw it for a complete tailspin. Join me today as I share my story of abuse at the hands of a functioning drug addict, as I also share how it turned my world upside down and how I literally had to flee in the middle of the night to save my life. But it didn't stop there. The story I'm about to share with you is intense and may be triggering for some. Please listen with caution. Stay tuned for part three of my unspoken story, Under the Influence. Welcome to the Unspoken Cycle Podcast where women of all ages and stages in life can find guidance and solace from life's everyday stresses. In each episode, we'll tackle a range of topics, including relationships, health, fertility, self-love, careers, mental illness, and more. Stay Stay tuned tuned for valuable insights, personal anecdotes, and the comfort of knowing you're not not alone. alone. Here's your host, Leah Vaughn. Hello, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of the Unspoken Cycle podcast. I am your host, Leah Vaughn, and I appreciate you being here with me today. Let me tell you, the last two episodes that I recorded were really heavy and difficult to process in a way, I guess, to say that I was mentally drained after each one of them, and I ended up having to take a break. And I know that I've taken intermission, and um, you know, most podcasts have breaks in the middle of seasons or in between different seasons. And you know, just like any other season of a TV show or whatever has, but I was not anticipating needing a break last week. But after the prior two recordings and just dredging up a bunch of things kind of all at once that I've laid to rest, so to speak, for so long. My mental was just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> we need we need a little bit of time to unwind, to relax, and to just be quiet. So I listened and I took a break and I did not announce it. Um, you know, there's one thing that I don't like about social media and just being present on the internet, I feel like we feel obligated to announce things like that to people. And mind you, of course, I take the unspoken cycle seriously. It's my baby. Um, You know, I love the effort I've put into my website and all of the resources that I help provide to everyone who's a member and who listens to my podcasts and read my blogs. But at the same time, it can just feel really, I don't know. It's like, I feel like I can't even take a break without saying, hey guys, I'm going to take a break, you know? And I just don't know that it's always necessary to announce things like that. The Unspoken Cycle is not a business. Um, For me, it is a, it's not a hobby. It's a passion. 
Um, and it's a resource, I guess, that I love to provide. It's certainly something that is a huge part of my heart and soul. And um, I don't make money off it. It's not monetized or anything like that. So I don't know. I just feel like, why do I have to go on Instagram every time I need a mental break and be like, hey, guys, I need a mental break, you know? So if you missed... uh, the updated episode from last week. Have no fear. There was not one. (laughs) This is the next episode in my four-part series. And I will say, thankfully, for October, there are several weeks in the month um, that I could post for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So my four-part series fell on a five-week month, and I am grateful for that because it did allow me the perfect time to insert a break. Um, And with that being said, I do just want to kind of go ahead and jump into today's story. This particular episode is one that is about a chapter of my life um, that's still a little bit hard for me to talk about. It took place around 10 years ago. And although it was a very short chapter of my life, it was scary Um, And I know I've already shared several experiences that are very scary and were very traumatic to go through, but this one was a different level because of the nature of the person, the intensity of the person, and the fact that this person was a drug addict and they were a functioning drug addict, which meant that on the outside, you didn't see what was going on. Everything looked normal. Everything seemed normal. But there was a lot going on behind the scenes. And it escalated and spiraled very quickly. Um, I certainly want to give a trigger warning for those of you who have been impacted in any way, shape, or form by domestic violence. This episode is certainly triggering. Uh, listen with caution. If you need to turn it off at any point in time, please do so. Um, Just be aware that I will be talking about substance abuse and uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Um, Yeah, all of the above in this episode. And let's get started. I actually have joked several times about this time in my life that it is lifetime movie worthy. Because when I really think about it, and I sit down and process how everything really transpired, I think there's no way this is real. (laughs) Just the way the events unfolded, and the way they escalated, and how everything ended, it's something that you would definitely see in like a TV movie or some documentary, you know, about drug addicts and abuse or stalkers or I don't know, something like that. But it's just crazy. And I think to myself, was this really my life? This was really my life. So it's hard to believe sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I am on the outside looking in on someone else's story because it just, here I am today, alive and kicking and able to talk about it. And it just feels unreal. So 
anyways. So many moons ago, <laughs> uh, back in 2012, uh, I'm sorry, back in 2013, I met an individual in a time in my life where I was doing really great. Um, just like the intro said, I was on top of the world. I had been a single mom for several years. I was focused on raising my kids. I was focused on healing myself um, from the inside. I was focused on education and career. I had just finished my degree program. I had just finished my life uh, coaching credentials uh, a short while before that. I had a great career. I um, had, you know, we lived in a really nice house. I had just bought a brand new family car. I took my girls to Disneyland on vacation. Uh, my best friend tagged along. That had been the second time I had taken my girls to Disneyland. And this time my friend tagged along with me and brought her daughter. And we just had such a good time. It was a great time in my life. Um, but the one thing that I see and that I noticed immediately um, at the end of the relationship was that I was lonely. I was someone who everything else was going right for me. But that particular time in my life, because it had just been me by myself with my kids, you know, for so long, it was hard for me to not want to share things like holidays and vacations and trips with the kids, you know, with someone else. And I guess that began to really weigh on me just because I felt like I was always going, going, going and doing, doing, doing for everything and everyone else in my life. I really wanted a partner who could do for me and with me. So I think that I just began to really become overwhelmed with feeling alone. And I had a great group of friends. I had a circle of moms and we would all hang out and get our kids together. And those times were really fun. And in those moments, they were fulfilling, but still going home at night or being alone at night and not having anyone to share my day with, not having anyone to cuddle with or just be romantic with or anything like that. Um, it just kind of felt isolating in a way that my friends and family and even children weren't able to fulfill for me in that time. So I feel like that opened up a level of vulnerability um, that greatly <laughs> clouded my judgment. So this individual reached out to me and coincidentally had a, a last name that was very common in the town that I grew up at, grew up in. And I thought I knew them. They didn't look familiar, but I thought I knew them. And I was like, okay, well, they must be related to so-and-so or so-and-so. It's a small town and it's a common name here in the small town. So um, maybe I just don't remember, you know, them from high school or elementary school or whatever. So, um, so I became friends with this person. And they were very charming, funny, and very friendly. And it was not romantic in the beginning. There was no uh, pursuing, I guess, on my end for sure, of anything like that. It was it was just a you know gaining a friend 
in the day when, you know, social media and everything was really starting to take off and boom. And that's how you, you know, built your circles and, and, you know, got to reconnect with people you hadn't seen in years and stuff like that. So it was normal for me. There was nothing wrong um, or a red flag in that moment. And then this person became flirtatious and, you know, we started talking and uh, they had a cool personality. They were attractive. You know, there was a lot of different components that were there. And I think eventually I just thought, okay, this is, this can work. This is cool. You know, this person's a vibe. And very quickly they began to love bomb uh, me. Love bombing is the action or practice of lavishing someone with attention or affection, especially in order to influence or manipulate them. And let me tell you, love bombing someone who is vulnerable and lonely works. Okay, so I will raise my hand and admit I was extremely vulnerable. I was extremely lonely. I liked the attention. I thought it was sweet. I thought it was sincere. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It just, it was special to me. You know, I was flattered. It felt good. It was the things that I was missing that I was feeling lonely for were here now, potentially. And I wanted to explore that. Of course, this person made sure that we had a lot of things in common. They certainly wanted to get on my good side. They were very sweet, very romantic, just in a lot of little ways. Um, and so we ended up going on some dates. We ended up having some great fun times together. And just very quickly, the the relationship escalated. I will be the first to admit that we moved way too fast. Um, I thought that, you know, I was really romanticizing that relationship. And I felt that if it was meant to flow like that, it was meant to flow like that. I didn't necessarily in that moment see it as a red flag, but we did move very quickly. We ended up moving in with each other and that's when everything just kind of started to change. Um, immediately this person began to become very isolating. Uh, they were very convincing at wanting to persuade me to just do things one-on-one, -on -one, to just invest in our own little quote-unquote family um, so that we could continue to spend time with each other. And they were very, they had a way with their words. It was convincing to me in a way that made sense. You know, yeah, of course, this we're like in our quote unquote honeymoon phase. So sure, you know, let's do things one on one. Let's do things just with the kids. Let's, you know, create this bond. And, you know, my family's always going to be around and their family lived out of state. So we were, you know, in town close to my family. And it just seemed like very quickly 
we were spending less and less and less time with my family. I was seeing and speaking to my friends less and less and less and became more and more overwhelmed, not even overwhelmed, just more and more centered around just this one person. And um, the, that person definitely encouraged it. And I definitely went along with it. And then their behavior started to kind of change. Now, they had met all of my friends and family. We even had a function where we barbecued and invited everybody over. Everybody loved this person, just like any other abuser I've talked about. They were charming, funny, charismatic. Everybody loved this person. And now I look back and I'm just like, I want to vomit. The amount of people who thought that they were great and everything else is just like, ugh, gross. It was definitely all a show. But I think intentionally they kind of wanted everyone wrapped around their fingers. So no one ever thought that they did anything wrong. Fast forward, it had been several months in our relationship and... I had a situation where I fell really, really ill. Um, I needed to have emergency surgery. And I look back now, and this was definitely a red flag. But I needed to have emergency surgery. I was in the emergency room waiting to be taken back and prepped and scheduled for surgery. My mom came to the hospital. And this individual turned my mom away. Now, mind you, I was under the influence of a lot of pain medications, a lot of medications going in my, you know, IVs, and I was out of it. I was just in so much pain from what was happening. My gallbladder had almost burst, and the pain I was feeling was so intense. And they, my mom showed up to the hospital and wanted to be there, obviously. And this individual was like, nope, got it taken care of. You don't need to be here. I'll call you and update you and everything's going on. So go home. Obviously, I didn't know in that moment that that's what happened. But that particular moment is what I believe started a spiral of really intense isolating behavior and manipulating behavior. So after that, it just kind of continued that they were a priority in my life. I needed to be obligated to them. And not in a way, I mean, when you, when I say it, it's like, you obviously, Leah, you had a choice. You don't have to, nobody tells you what to do. You don't have to listen to somebody and they're like, oh, you know, leave your family alone and only be with me. Like that sounds crazy, right? Who would actually follow that or do that to their family and friends and like willingly remove them from their lives. Like that's not, that wasn't the situation, but this person was very manipulative in a way that it was just this one time, or let's just do this, just, you know, this once and then next time we'll include them or next time we'll do this. Or even after the fact with the hospital thing, it was you were in so much pain and there were so many nurses and doctors around you. It was, you know, I just wanted you to rest. I was trying to take care of you. I was looking out for you. In the moment, it seemed like, oh, okay, this person really cares about me. They they had my best interests at heart when no, 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 they didn't. They just wanted to have me all to themselves and to be the only one who was there for me. 
So there were a lot of situations that began to look like that. Um, I was volunteering and uh, volunteering in the community and it was work I loved to do. And uh, this person, when we met, was very encouraging, thought that was a great quality, that there, you know, there were good things that I was doing in the community and for others. And that was something that initially they supported. And then once we were committed and serious, it was, you know, you work so far from home and you commute every day and you work long hours and then you go volunteer and then you come home and it's late and I never get to spend time with you and you're not helping, you know, you're not home, um, you know, as much as you should be. And and we need to be more, you know, spending more time together and the kids need to see their mom more. And it was like guilt trip after guilt trip after guilt trip of why I wasn't present enough. And that began to weigh on me and I began to feel guilty. So I stopped volunteering and was like, okay, you're right. I do commute to work. I do work long hours. Sometimes I had a management position. It was very demanding. Although I had balanced my life with my children by myself before this person entered into my life, I didn't see it as a problem. Um, you know, I was doing a lot. I was very involved. I was, you know, supportive of, you know, uh, the foundation I was building for me and my kids. And they made it seem like I was blinded to the fact that I wasn't there enough, that I wasn't around enough, that I was doing too much, that it was all about me. And I started to feel really selfish. I started to feel like... God, they must be right. I'm this horrible person. I never, you know, I'm not prioritizing my family. This is terrible. Who does that? And I I literally gave everything up. Everything that was in my life that defined what I loved outside of my children, my career, um and my home, I gave up. And it all was because it was and it was all because this one individual was in my ear about how I was doing it all wrong and how I should feel terrible that I wasn't prioritizing other things in the way I should have been. That was hard for me to hear. And so I thought they have to be right. Now, mind you, again, we lived together. We had moved in together. Well, they moved in with me. I'm not even going to say we moved in together. They moved in with me. They moved from out of state and they were not pitching in around the house. And again, it was excuse after excuse. It was, I'm trying to find a job, but there's no work over here. And we lived in a small town. There wasn't a ton of careers there. There wasn't a ton of jobs um, like you might find in larger areas. So I thought, well, every day they say they're going out, looking for work, applying for jobs, looking in the paper, making phone calls, going into stores and businesses and, you know, trying to find work. It's not their fault if, you know, it's not happening. So we'll just give them some time. It's an adjustment, blah, blah, blah. I made excuses for everything because this person was so good at convincing me that they were trying their best, right? So fast forward a little bit and their behavior started to become odd, I guess um, you could say. They would start staying up really late until like two, three, four in the morning, which isn't really a red flag, but it became a red flag because it started to be that way every single night. Then they started to do things like isolate themselves in the garage. 
or um, they installed a lock on the outside of the garage door, like the, the door to the laundry room, so that they could lock themselves in the garage and you couldn't get out into the garage. And then they would unlatch the garage door so I couldn't go around outside and open up the garage door. So they would just go in there and spend hours and hours and hours by themselves. And that to me was concerning. But when I would talk to them about it, it was, I'm depressed. I'm having a hard time adjusting. Um, you know, this is, it's hard for me. I can't find work. I don't have anything to do. Um, you know, I'm just trying to work everything out and make sure we're okay. And I felt sad for them. I felt bad for them. I was like, wow, they did. They moved all the way over here away from their family. Um, you know, they don't have any friends. They don't have anywhere to go every day, all day. It must suck. So I started to feel really bad. Like, what can I do to help? And it was, it was never, there was never a solution as far as what I could do to help. So this person became more and more isolating. They began to blame me more and more and more. And I think because I was already in previous situations where I readily took the blame for things, that immediately just began to be normal for me to do in this particular situation. I'd like to look back and say, Leah, you knew better. What the hell? This is crazy. Obviously, those things weren't your fault. You were trying to be a supportive partner. You know, what the fuck? But I felt bad. I was definitely manipulated into feeling sorry for this person. Um, I was manipulated into seeing them as kind of a victim of their circumstance and, you know, they talked about feeling depressed and sad that they were so far away from their family and all of these other things. So it was just a tough situation. But the more they began to isolate themselves and more, the more they began to blame our situation on how they were feeling and from being so far away from their family, you know, I started to think, well, what are some of the solutions? you know, I like this person, I care about this person, I'm in a committed relationship with this person. So what are some of the solutions? And so we talked about moving away back to closer to their family um, and their friends and, and that support system over there. Now, I'm a bit of a gypsy. So for those of you who are going to judge me and be like, well, obviously you should, you know, why would you move away from your people and, you know, with this person who is having issues and blah, blah, blah. I've always been somebody who has wanted to explore other places to live. Um, the town I lived in, my hometown, no offense to anyone listening who is from my hometown, but it just ain't it for me. <laughs> it's a small town. Um, when I was growing up, it was very much like dairies and farming and country. That is just not it for me. Uh, never has been. I've always been somebody who wanted to venture out and see what else the world had to offer and find new experiences and cultures and people and everything else. So to me, my kids were still young enough. It wasn't going to impact them in school. Um, you know, it was a different situation or it was a situation that 
would have allowed us to find a different place. And I was like, okay, great. You know, let's go, let's do it. I'm not opposed to new experiences. Um, you know, I don't know. I think that I just began to romanticize life with this person in a very unrealistic way to where I said, I can leave everything and we can start new and that'll, that'll be okay. It'll be good. I adapt well. I'm always up for new experiences and things. And, um, you know, if this is, you know, if, if, if being a caring partner is making sacrifice for the other person and also, um, exploring other things that may benefit, uh, us as a couple and my children, then why not? You know, so that's kind of the mentality that I was in. I was trying to be understanding and compassionate and flexible. Um, obviously, <laughs> not in the right ways, but that's where I was at. That was my mindset at that time. So that decision single handedly disrupted my entire life. Once that's what we decided and it was set in stone and we started to put the plan into motion, everything in my life began to crumble and this individual loved it. I really feel that they were so happy that they had quote unquote won and were going to get me away from everything that posed a potential threat to them. My family, began to question my motives. My family began to vocally disagree with my decision. They felt like you're moving too fast. You're making irrational decisions. Why would you leave? Why would you bring your kids somewhere? And mind you, I had already lived with my children in another state. So for me, I was like, what are you even talking about? This is, you know... <laughs> Uh, two out of three of my children were not born in the state of California. So that's not, not an issue, you know? And so I was just really defensive of my decisions. I didn't want to hear anybody's criticism. It was really starting to stress me out. And the more people began to get involved in the decisions of our life together, the more this individual became intense, aggressive, emotionally, just would lash out, um, isolate themselves even more and blame me even more. And then started to blame, you know, my family for creating a rift and being unreasonable and cruel and all of these other things. Um, this individual was a woman. This was the first time that I was in a relationship with a woman. So she began to convince me that they were, um, being homophobic and judgmental because of that. Um, and some of it seemed real. I had people reach out to me that vocally, did not agree with me being in a same-sex relationship. I had a really good friend of mine who had, I had been friends with for probably 15 years at that point. Um, I was in her wedding. I was a bridesmaid in her wedding. We had traveled together and had great times. That person cut me off, didn't want to be my friend anymore because 
I was in a same-sex uh, relationship. I had the pastor of my church call me and tell me that that was not right for my life. Like people were vocalizing their disapproval of our relationship. And so I did feel like we were being picked on, like I was being targeted, like people were being unfair to me. And that alone drove me away too. I was like, I'm sick of this community. I don't want to be here anymore. It's already hard on us for all of these different reasons. So moving began to sound more and more like what needed to happen. And again, the closer it got to leaving, the more intense everything and everyone around me got. Um, it got to the point where I ended up in court. I ended up battling custody. I ended up going through a really nasty legal fight around my children and what I had the right to do with them. And it was just really, really horrific. And that was just the beginning of it. So in just a few months, this one individual had moved into my life, had been everything I thought I needed and wanted, got me to a place where I was vulnerable and really happy with my situation and my companionship, and in the blink of an eye had turned everyone against us, had isolated me from the majority of the people that loved me and cared about me and had really mind-fucked the shit out of me. Her behavior was bizarre and I didn't feel like I could talk to anyone about it because it was embarrassing. I felt like it was just some sort of, you know, newly committed relationship growing pain or something. I don't know. I don't know what else to call it, but I felt like it was my responsibility to fix it and work it out. Um her family loved her. Her friends adored her. They were all extremely supportive of us, excited to see us, excited for us to go over, you know, to uh, move where they were. And like all of these different opportunities were awaiting us. And it just more and more sounded like the grass was going to be greener on the other side. But that didn't change her behavior at home. She still began to become extremely isolating even more than before. And this time in a way that she would go on the computer for hours and convince me that people were hacking into our Wi-Fi. She would go through the phone records of our phone bill and ask me about different phone numbers and things that would pop up and why I talked to them at certain times of the day or why um, she didn't recognize the phone numbers if they weren't contacts in my phone. Obviously, those are big red flags, big, big, big red flags. But I feel like I was so overwhelmed at this point with everyone else who was being so discouraging to me. I was upset with my family. I was disappointed um, that my friends were kind of backing away, that there was I was no longer feeling supportive. And I began to feel alone again, just in a different way. Um, not alone as far as missing a romantic link, but alone and feeling like I no longer had a support system. Um, 
I wasn't really, I was paying attention, but I wasn't paying attention. I definitely thought, God, she's home every day, you know, going through all this stuff by herself. And obviously she's, you know, suffering from depression. She's losing her mind. You know, I was just making excuses for her behavior and constantly explaining myself. Like, what are you talking about? No one's hacking into our Wi-Fi. Is that even possible? What are you talking about? Why are you questioning all of these, um, you know, cell phone numbers on my cell phone bill to, I, to the point where I would call them and be like, look, this is such and such. Look, I ordered food from here. Look, you know, so-and-so called me to pay a bill. Like, these are normal things, you know? And, and I was just trying to calm her. And obviously, I saw that she was maybe feeling insecure. And I think I was taking responsibility for that. And just feeling bad about everything. Um, and yeah, I was wearing the weight of the blame on my shoulders. And so um, we got closer and closer to the move. Her, beha- her behavior became more and more bizarre. At this point, I don't even know when she was sleeping. Uh, she rarely slept in the room at night with me. I would get up for work in the morning and she would be awake in the garage. Um, it was really weird, but I just kept thinking she just has to get out of here. You know, it's just closer to home. She's really missing her family. There's, you know, all of these things that I was trying to justify. And I even offered to have her talk to somebody. She didn't want to. She just, you know, she had friends and family who were supporters and that was her tribe who she could lean on. And I was, you know, who was I to argue that? So fast forward to moving day. We packed up the U-Haul. We had the kids in one car and we had two dogs. I had two dogs before I met this person. So we put the dogs in their kennels. We had a cat, put the cat in the, in the U-Haul and off we were, off we went. And we made our way all the way to Oklahoma. It was a very long drive but we made it. And all along the way, she was really paranoid, I guess you could say. It almost reminded me kind of of my previous relationship where there were always some really bizarre accusations like, you know, who you who, who are you looking for in the mirrors and why are you, you know, looking around and why are you smiling at that person? You know, it was just really bizarre behavior like that. And if, you know, I was driving the U-Haul, she was driving the car. If she would call me while we were driving and I didn't answer right away, I must've been talking to somebody who was it? What am I hiding? And I was like, oh, what are you, what is this? You know, like, I know you're feeling down and out. I know you're going through a lot, but stop, just don't, don't even go there with me. I found myself having to defend myself the whole way there. So by the time we actually got to Oklahoma to the house, uh, we were staying with her parents and that was supposed to be temporary until, you know, we got on, got on our feet and found a place. I was relieved. Her family was so sweet, very loving. Um, her mom was really nurturing and caring and I was welcome to that because by this time my mom and I were not on the same page at all. We were not on speaking terms. Um, 
she had done a lot of things to intervene and protect me and my daughters from this person. And I just felt like she was being hurtful and intrusive and inappropriate um, and definitely overstepping boundaries. And that pushed me away from her. And um, it also pushed me away from some of my other family members who were supportive of her and the things that she was doing to try to stop it. She didn't want us to leave with this person. She didn't trust this individual. She didn't know things that were going on behind closed doors, but she uh, had an idea that things were not going well. So I think that definitely triggered her because of my history um, to be very protective and to not want to see me go down the road of making the same mistakes which is completely understandable as a mother. I would certainly be there for my children and protect them and and want to save them and intervene um, if I saw the same things. But it was just a really tumultuous relationship. So my relationship with my mom was pretty much non-existent at this point. It was pretty much non-existent at this point. And I really uh, felt refreshed to have someone there who was supportive. Um, at the end of the day, it just felt like I was trying to live my life, you know, trying to give my kids a life, trying to um, be in a committed relationship where, um, you know, we were allowed to just be a family. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. And I justified all of the things that were red flags in a way that, you know, new thing, new, uh, new experience would fix it. Um, being back home for this person would fix it. I'm okay with, you know, living in different places and exploring different places. I don't, you know, I don't miss home so much to where I get depressed and da, 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 da. So that doesn't affect me like that. So this will fix it for this person. They'll, they'll feel better. They'll do better. Things will get better. Like I just kept telling myself that. And it probably too was because I was really, really, really trying to be successful in a relationship deep down. I don't think I knew it at the time, but I definitely think I was trying so hard to really just have something that worked out, you know, in a way that I deserved and in a way that I wanted. So, so anywho, we move in with her parents and it begins to become really bizarre. She would leave at all hours of the night to go visit friends and not come home. Her behavior was really weird. Um, I found a job, which was great, uh, working at a boy's home in Oklahoma. And let me tell you, the people there are forever friends they made me feel safe and comfortable, and I loved the experience and the environment. It felt like a second home to me. So that was definitely a breath of fresh air. Um, the kids were involved in uh, school and daycare, so they were out of the house, you know, during the days, and things started to kind of feel like they were normal. And it felt like everything was going to settle down and everything was going to work out. Well, my court uh, cases were not settled and they got more intense. Um, I ended up having to 
be present for custody hearings. Um, and the dispute just got uglier and uglier because I was isolated from my family, because they did not know how I was doing. Um, and because of the situation, it just got really intense. So that was pretty stressful. That definitely escalated her behavior. She became more protective of me and the kids. And, um, just became really aggressive towards my family, uh, toward the kid's father. It just became a huge mess. And so one day I was cleaning up at home or in our home and I found a bag and it was like a little canvas bag with a drawstring and it was tucked deep into the side of a chair that she always sat in in the bedroom. And so naturally I pulled it out and I'm like, what is this? And I opened it up and it was drug paraphernalia. It was a pipe and I am not an idiot <laughs> when it comes to street drugs. I've been around pretty much every kind of street drug you can think of. I've been exposed to all sorts of things on all sorts of levels. So I immediately knew what it was. And there were two baggies of drugs and a lighter and a few other things. And I dumped it all out and I opened the baggies and I smelled them. And then I took the pipe and looked under a light at it and knew immediately that she was smoking meth. It was methamphetamine. My heart sank because. That right there, in, in that moment, <sighs> and I don't want to cry, but in that moment, I knew I had made the biggest mistake of my life, hands down, hands down. Every single justification I had made for how she was feeling, for wanting to try to provide a new foundation for our family, for wanting to take my kids away from where I was raising them for this person and for a future with this person. All of that immediately came crashing down on me. And I sat, I just remember sitting on the floor and crying. And saying to myself, Leah, what the fuck did you do? You have literally uprooted your life for a quote unquote better life somewhere else with someone who has been lying and lying to you and manipulating you. She's a drug addict. Duh. That's why she stays up all hours of the night. That's why she's paranoid. That's why she's acting weird about phone numbers and Wi-Fi. And that's why she thinks your family's out together. And that's why she thinks no one supported y'all. Like she's a fucking drug addict. I was devastated. And I felt, I, I in that moment, I hated myself so much. I felt disgusted. I felt stupid. And I felt ashamed for my children 
and what I had done to them. Um, it was a mess and it was terrifying. So when she came home, so I put it all back together. I didn't tell anybody what I had found. And when she came home, I confronted her about it. And I said, look, I found this. And I went into the side of the chair and I pulled it out and I showed it to her. And I said, is this yours? And she did not hide a thing. She said, yeah, it is. I said, how long have you had this? And she said, oh, I've always done that. I said, what do you mean you've always done that? She said, well, I took a short break when you and I first started dating. You know, once I moved out to California with you, it wasn't hard to find a connect uh, where we were. So I was able to, um, you know, resume again. And I said, and you think that this is something that I would allow to be a part of my life and my kids' lives? And she said, but I function fine. I'm fine. She was like, you know, I don't have sunken in cheeks. I don't starve myself. I'm not covered in... Um, you know, blisters and sores on my arms and, you know, I'm not crazy or anything like that. I'm not addicted to it. It's just something I like to do. It makes me feel good. And I was like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? You're sitting here right now justifying smoking meth because you think you're a functioning like drug user that that makes it okay for you. I got so upset And then it was like a whole other side to her came out because I threatened her. I threatened her addiction. I threatened to expose it. I threatened to take it away. And that is when everything started to become like a lifetime movie. Um. In a very short period of time, I was only with this person for maybe a year, uh, maybe a year and a half total. But in a very short period of time, a lot of things happened. So fast forward a few months, uh, my kids ended up moving back to California. I fought really hard to keep them with me, but she was beginning to intervene in my court case. She was starting to do things like when I was on a virtual hearing, she would yell things at the judge in the background. She would curse at my ex-husband, the kid's father, and say things to him. The judge would warn me about it. She wouldn't shut up. Um, And because she became more and more vocal and aggressive in front of the court system. Of course, they saw me as being in a toxic relationship. Of course, they saw me as being in a relationship with someone who was not healthy around the children, and they were ordered to uh, be moved back to California um, where their father was at that time confirmation that this relationship was over. For me, it was over emotionally because I I hadn't lost my children. I still had custody of them. Um but they left immediately after the judge made his decision 
And I needed to immediately find a way out to the problem with that was that I didn't have anywhere to go. And you might say, well, you could have gone home and you should have called your family. My family was really pissed off at me. They were really upset. And it wasn't as easy as calling home. Um, my mom wasn't talking to me at that time. Uh, I had reached out to some other family members who offered moral support, but not physical support. So the door wasn't open, so to speak. Um, I had lost touch with some of my friends. I didn't even have the same cell phone that I had because she uh, trashed my cell phone and on purpose and got us flip phones and no one had my phone number because I had lost all my contacts. Um, of course, I knew some family members by heart and things like that, but she she did a really good job at just isolating me from things. So right before the kids were getting ready to move back to California, we had an argument and I told her I wanted to leave and she took my car keys from me and she took my cell phone and hid it. She took all of the computers in the house and hid them. She unplugged the house phone and basically said, you know, if you want to go across the street and call 911, be my guest, but you're going to pay for it kind of a thing. So we got into an arguing match, a shouting match, and we tussled a little bit and she pinned me up against the wall and she shoved me so hard in my chest and hit me in my stomach. And that was the first time she had physically become aggressive. Everything else was very emotionally manipulative, very isolating, very controlling. But this was the first time she was physical. And I immediately lost my breath and began kind of choking. And I ran into the bathroom, which was right across the hall from where this happened. And I was like gagging and choking. And I was spitting up in the sink and I was spitting up blood. And I got really, really scared that she had done something or done something to hurt me like internally, like damaged my organs or something like that. I just got really scared. It was definitely a flashback of the physical abuse I had endured years and years before. And I looked in the mirror and out of the corner of my eye, I saw my two daughters standing at the bottom of the stair staircase. And they had tears in their eyes and they were watching me spit up blood in the sink. And I looked at myself and I knew it was the best thing for them to leave because I did not want them around that. And because I needed to find a way out and this was something I was going to have to fight for alone. And as shitty as it sounded, I knew I needed to get my kids out of the situation. And I was in a place where I had no family and no friends. I was afraid to talk to anybody I knew, like at work and stuff like that. It was embarrassing to really admit what was unfolding so quickly. So I hate to say it, but I was glad they were leaving. They needed to not be there to witness that. They needed to not watch their mom go through that. And I needed to figure a way to get the fuck out. 
So they left shortly after and shit just escalated from there. It got to the point where she would drive me to and from work. When I was home, she would take my car keys and my cell phone while I slept. She would go through all of my messages, all of my phone calls, because she would go through my things at night and began to make it a habit of going through my cell phone records while I slept. You know, she was staying up all night, literally tweaking, and she would try to find things on the computer. She would try to track my locations. Like she was insane with the things that she was trying to find out or I don't know whatever she was doing. So I began to sleep with one eye open. Literally to this day, I am the lightest sleeper because I am conditioned to wake up at any little sound or movement. And I started sleeping with my cell phone and my car keys underneath my pillow. And I would sleep in a way where I would put my hands under my pillow and I could feel if she began to reach over and find them or try to find them. Sometimes I would tuck them into my pillowcase. So if she reached over too far, she would hit my head and I would feel it. Now, mind you, she was sneaky with this stuff. So she didn't want to get caught. But because I would hear her, I knew what she was doing. So she wasn't hiding it from me, even though she thought she was being sneaky and hiding it from me. But I literally learned how to sleep with one eye open, so to speak. It was terrible. It was definitely a... Uh, I was definitely in survival mode and I was terrified because I never knew what she was up to and what she was doing. And because she was always the most active at night while I was sleeping. And that for me felt so scary. Like my mental health was terrible because I couldn't even get a good night's sleep. I couldn't even rest because I was always fearful of what she was up to while I slept. She would take my clothes, my work clothes, so I couldn't find anything to wear. There was one morning I woke up to go to work and I went to get in the car and it wouldn't start because she had disabled the fuses in the fuse box of the car so that I couldn't start it and I couldn't drive it. That very same day, I called in, to, I called in sick to work. And that very same day, we were inside. Um, I was inside the house. And she locked all of the doors from the outside so that I couldn't get out. I don't know. Her dad, her stepdad had like a little shed in the backyard where he kept tools and all sorts of things. And she found what she needed and locked all of the doors. So she barricaded me inside the house. She had unplugged the phones. She had taken my cell phone. And I literally could not figure out how to get out. She had nailed the screens to the windows shut from the outside. So I couldn't open the windows. She had taken boards to the sliding glass door and boarded, like put a board uh, at the very bottom of the sliding glass door. So if I tried to open it, it would jam from the, like if I opened it from the inside, it would jam. And I literally sat in there and cried. I went upstairs and 
I sat in the room that the used to be the girls' room, and I was crying. And I heard her come upstairs, and there was an attic way at the upstairs of the house that went from one room to uh, one room at one end of the hallway all the way to another room at the other end of the hallway. And it was like a small crawl space that went kind of behind the bedrooms. But there was a little uh, doorway in each closet of the rooms upstairs that connected to this little crawl space. So I heard her come upstairs and I'm sitting in the girl's room and I hear her crawl across to the closet of the room I'm sitting in. And she just sat there and I don't know what she was doing, but when I tell you that was the eeriest feeling I had ever felt in my life. I felt like I was in that movie, People Under the Stairs. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. If you haven't and you're a horror buff, definitely watch it. But that was horrific. The experience of knowing she was literally like watching me and following me and spying on me was so scary. So it got to a point where I couldn't really hide it anymore at work because I was becoming so emotionally just distraught over all of it. And I needed help to find a way out. So I spoke to some of my coworkers and let them know kind of what was going on. Um, And they were very supportive and convinced me to talk to her parents. I was afraid to talk to her parents because number one, I hadn't known them for that long. And number two, they loved their daughter. So I was afraid that they would turn on me too and I would end up like homeless in the street. Um, And I just didn't know what to do and who to turn to. So I ended up talking to them one night. I went home and I sat her parents down and I just said, look, your daughter is treating me this way. At this point, she was not home. She was she had taken the car and gone over with some of her crackhead friends, I'm sure. And I just said, you know, your daughter is treating me this way. I don't know what to do. Me and my family are not on good terms right now. I need help. I don't want to be with her anymore. They actually supported me not wanting to be with her because I think they were silently witnessing her bizarre behavior. Um her mom didn't want to admit that she was using drugs, but I tried my best to convince her at that particular moment of that conversation. I tried to go upstairs and see if I could find any sort of paraphernalia to prove to her. But again, she wasn't in the house. She had left and she had taken everything with her. So I couldn't physically prove, Hey, look, here's a crack pipe. This is your, you know, but I was trying to convince them. So They agreed that if it was getting to be that tumultuous of a relationship, then if I felt I needed to take a step back and do what was best for myself because I had myself and my children to look after, they were fully supportive. And I was actually really surprised, number one, that that was their response, but relieved, number two, that that was their response. So I explained how she was isolating me in the house and I explained how, um, you know, I wasn't able to drive the car, how she was, you know, following me around in the attic and it was just really creeping me out and it was bizarre behavior. So they decided to confront her on it. That was a terrible mistake. They confronted her. She told them I was crazy. 
she made up some story about how she was doing all of those things because she knew I was cheating on her and she was recording me and all of these affairs I was having in the, in the car. And I was taking the car to work and I was leaving on my lunch breaks and I was going and having affairs in the car while I was supposed to be at work. And she supposedly, supposedly had all these recordings of it. And then, um, you know, she basically tried to tell him I was a piece of shit and that's why she was acting the way she was acting and that, you know, she didn't know if she wanted to be with me either and all this other stuff. And I was just like, what in the hell are you even talking about? So her parents didn't buy it just because her behavior was so bizarre. Um, her mom ended up offering to help me do what I needed to do. So she sent me to, she gave me her car keys. She sent me to Walmart while this individual had left the house for the second time that day. And I went to Walmart and she gave me her credit card and I bought a little flip phone that this other individual couldn't locate, wouldn't be able to trace and didn't even know existed. And when I tell you, I would find hiding places in the house to hide it when she was home. So she didn't know it existed. But that was my way of checking up, checking in with her parents while I was at work. Um, and then also trying to use it for whatever resources I could to get out of that situation. She figured out that they were helping me. Uh, I got a phone call one day from her mom on my little flip phone cell phone. And she said, so-and-so has taken the gun out of our room and left the house and is threatening to kill herself and we can't find her. So she decided that she was going to threaten suicide because her family was helping me and because they were terrible and evil because they were helping me and I was the bad guy. So I ended up, she ended up coming home Several hours later, we sent sheriffs out to find her. They tried to ping her cell phone. They couldn't locate her. And then she just ended up coming back home several hours later. And at that point, I was like, I don't want to be with you anymore. I think you're fucking crazy. I don't want to be with a drug addict. The things you're doing to me are abusive and horrific. And if you don't stop, I'm going to call the police and report to you. And she literally told me, if you call the police, I know where your kids are at. You can count them. Goodbye. Or she said, if you call the police, I know where your kids are at. You can pretty much count them like dead. That triggered me so quickly all the way back to my first relationship that was so physically abusive and so violent. Because that's the thing that he would do to hold things against me and to make me do certain things for him. He always threatened to kill the people I loved. And I always believed that he would actually do it. So when she said that, I believed her because she was a crackhead. She was a meth addict. You cannot trust anybody who justifies being a quote unquote functioning meth head. There's no common sense or no actual rationality going on in their thought process. So I thought she was capable of anything. 
But I stood my ground and told her I wanted to leave, that I was not happy with the way I was being treated, and that if she really felt that I was the deceitful one in the relationship, she should be happy to let me go then. And for some reason, she acted supportive. Um, She tried to say, you know, she was really disappointed and I was an asshole and I was, she was, you know, I hurt her and all of these things, but you know, if I wanted to leave, fine, go. So I started to confide more into some of the people I was closest to at my job. And coincidentally there, there was housing, uh, on location there. And, um, a very good friend of mine helped me work out, um, moving into the housing because one of the uh, apartments was opening up. So I, I was able to secure the housing and I was ready to get out of the house. So I started to move little by little my things out of our bedroom into the room that my daughters had slept in when they were there. And I told her I was leaving. I told her I was moving. She would leave for days at a time. And so I thought, okay, she's she's okay with this. She's just going off and getting high. She probably doesn't even really care that I'm leaving anymore. She's kind of stopped doing bizarre things like barricading me in the house. She stopped taking the car keys from me. Like clearly she's accepting this. So this is my opportunity to just get the fuck out. So one morning I was sleeping in the room, uh, not the bedroom that we had shared, but I was sleeping in the room where the girls had slept their bedroom, old bedroom. And I heard the door to my bedroom, like creak open very quietly. And I got really scared. So I looked over and I didn't see her come in the room, but the door was cracked. I was like, Oh God, please, please don't do anything stupid right now. I just got really scared, like chills and butterflies and everything. So I kept my eyes closed and I heard this weird, like scooting noise. And without fully opening my eyes, I glance, I, I, you know, kind of peek my eyelids open And here she is doing the army crawl on the floor alongside my side of the bed. And she starts to reach onto the bedside table and try to reach for my cell phone. And I popped up so fast and I grabbed the cell phone and she grabbed my arm. And then we started to like tussle. And I grabbed, you know, I was trying my hardest to keep it close to me, to keep my arm like tucked in close to me. And she was fighting to try to pry that cell phone out of my fingers. And I bit her because she was like trying to mush my face. You know, I don't know if you know what mushing is, but she just like put her whole hand over my face to like push my face away and like try to get me to loosen my grip. So I bit her hand. And she grabbed me. She stood up and she she was a big girl. She was not a small girl. <laughs> She's right that she didn't look like a starving crackhead. Like she was a, a chunky girl at this point. She grabbed me, both my arms, lifted me up and threw me off the bed. And I landed on the floor on top of my hands, like on my stomach. But my hand still had the cell phone in my hand, in my clutches. 
and my hands were tucked like underneath my breastbone, like by my rib cage. And I was laying there face down with my arms tucked under me. She gets on top of me and she, she like puts all her weight and is laying on top of me and puts her hands underneath me, under mine, trying to pry my hands out from under me. And I just remember I couldn't breathe because she literally had all of her weight on top of me and my hands were underneath me by my breastbone and like squishing my lungs. So I couldn't take any breaths in. I started to panic and I just kept saying, get off me, get the fuck off me, get the fuck off me. And she was like, give me your phone, you whore. And just calling me all of these names and yelling and screaming and I don't know what kind of Hulk adrenaline power rushed over me. But when I tell you my panic really set in because I couldn't take a breath and I thought I'm going to die. She's going to suffocate me right now trying to get this fucking phone from me. I took all of my power and I clenched my fists and kind of made them to where I could push up on them. And I pushed up so hard that she rolled off of me. I got up and I ran downstairs and I ran outside and I called her brother and on myself on the cell phone. And I said, your sister has lost her shit. She's fucking crazy. She just tried to beat the shit out of me. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be with her. I just want to leave and I want to leave safely. Please. Can you come help me? Please come to the house and just tell her to leave with you. Just come get your sister. So he ended up calling the cops and not coming and he called the cops. And of course, by the time the cops got there, she had left and they asked me what had happened. And I told them what had happened and they asked me if I wanted to press charges. And I said, no. Um, and they asked if that was the first time she was physically like aggressive towards me. And I said, no. And I said, I just want to leave. I just want to leave. I don't want to live here anymore. I have an opportunity to move. I'm just waiting to get my keys, which I think was maybe like a day or two after that. Like this was just a transition phase. I just wanted to get the fuck out of that house and get the fuck away from her. So the officer gave me his number and said, if she comes back and she is, you know, in any way, shape or form threatening to you, call me directly. I'll be here in a heartbeat. I told her after he left, I called her mom, told her mom what had happened. And her mom called her and said, don't come back to the house until Leah's gone. And she listened. So... Fast forward a couple weeks later, I had moved out of the house. I had moved all of my belongings out of the house. I had moved on to the campus, the job that I was working at. Um, I thought I was safe there and I thought I was going to be rid of her. I went to the courthouse. I filed for a restraining order um, and all of the necessary legal, legal paperwork to be completely separated and far away from her as legally possible with all the protections I could, I could, you know, get for myself. They granted everything to me. And when it came time for her to show up in court for the restraining order, I was very nervous um, I had her served appropriately and all of that good stuff, but she showed up and she literally tried to tell the judge that I was crazy 
and all of these crazy things about me. She, at this point, had been sending me harassing emails. I still have all of this documentation. If I ever write a book about this individual, and I am not going to hide any of the truth of it, I will include copies of all of the emails and things that she wrote to me. She told me she was an undercover DEA agent. She told me that she knew that I was running an undercover drug and prostitution ring with her family. She told me that I was the girlfriend of the head of some biker gang in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that we were drug runners and that she, that that's why I was, you know, doing things behind her back and deceiving her. She had found images on Google earth. I don't know if you've ever used Google earth, but she had found images. I don't even know how she found these images of people in cars on the street, just random streets in the area that we used to live in. And she would tell me that those people were me. She included all of these things in emails to me. She accused me of being pregnant with twins with my ex-husband. She accused me of all sorts of things in email, in writing. And I was just recording all of these things. I was saving all of the emails. My responses to her were always, stop, leave me alone. I don't want to speak to you. You know, do not communicate with me anymore. But I didn't want to block her emails because I felt like that was important supportive documentation for my case. I At one point, she had sent me an email and accused me of working for ISIS. I mean, it was so bizarre, the most bizarre thing ever. So we went to court and the judge granted me a five-year restraining order, which was amazing. I was so glad that he did that. He, on that very same day, he asked for one of the bailiffs of the court to escort me to my car because she was physically there so that she could not follow me. So I was so thankful for that. I really felt protected. Um, I felt like I was going to have the opportunity to get my life back, that I was going to be able to escape this person safely. And I was wrong. The restraining order meant nothing to her. She felt like the cops were all in on it that everything was some grand scheme against her. She was a complete narcissist. And she ended up stalking me where I moved to, which also happened to be where I worked at. So she would show up on campus and like park on the outskirts of the campus and different people would see her and they would call me on the walkie talkies and tell me that she was there watching. And you could see my apartment from the road And I worked late hours because of the type of work that I did. I worked late hours and I would go out into the, um, you know, leave my shift and I would have to have one of my shift partners escort me to my apartment because I was afraid that she would be there. And sure enough, there were a couple of nights that we would get to my apartment and I could see the head, the dimmed headlights in the distance of her sitting in the car. I knew that was her car. I knew what it looked like. I wasn't stupid. Every time I saw her, I would call the sheriffs. And every time they would come out, she would be gone by the time they got there. 
So unless they actually caught her, they couldn't arrest her for violating her restraining order or anything like that. So it became really frustrating for me because it was like a catch me if you can kind of a situation. Like she would be there. I would see her, but it would be dark. I couldn't get clear pictures of her license plate to prove it was her car. You know, so she was totally just stalking me. And then there was one night that I got home and I was in the shower and I got out of the shower and I heard a knock on my door and I didn't know who it would have been. My neighbors and I didn't really like socialize like that at those hours of the night. A lot of times they weren't home and, you know, things like that. So I didn't think it was one of my neighbors. I peek out the window. There was a window right next to the door and she was standing there and she saw me peek out the window and she said, let me in. And I said, if you don't leave, I'm calling the police. I'm calling the sheriffs. And she said, what are you talking about? You told me to come. I said, I did not tell you to come get the fuck off my property. Get the fuck off this property. And she tried to wiggle my doorknob. And I said, I'm going to call the sheriffs right now. And I got on the phone with 911 and she kept wiggling my doorknob. And she said, you know, you want this. You know, you want me to be here. Every, she said, everywhere I turn, you're asking me to come to you. I'm thinking, what the fuck is she talking about? No, I am not. Get the fuck off this property. And I told her I had 911 on the phone. I had the sheriffs on the line. At this point, she's yelling at me. She's trying to wiggle my doorknob. It seemed like she was trying to pick the lock. Like there was, she was doing something besides just wiggling the doorknob. I was so scared. My heart was racing. I thought, oh my God, if she breaks into this apartment right now, it's midnight. It's like really late at night. You know, the campus that I lived on was out in the country in the middle of nowhere. It was scary. I thought, oh my God, she's going to come in here. She's going to something's going to happen. She's going to take me and kidnap me. And I mean, the things going through my head, I was so scared. So I had the sheriffs on the line. I kept telling them what she was doing as she was doing it. She's wiggling my doorknob. It, it sounds like she's trying to pick my lock. And then I was set, standing there holding the doorknob to try to keep it like from moving so she couldn't jiggle it anymore. And then they could hear her talking on the other side of the door to me. I was literally panicked. And I said, the sheriff's on the way. The sheriff's are on the way. The sheriff's are on the way. The sheriff stayed on the line with me and finally she stopped trying to mess with the doorknob and it got quiet. I was too afraid to look out the window again because she would see me look out the window. So I just waited. I stood there. I was sweating bullets and maybe about 10 or 15 minutes later, it seemed like forever. The sheriff, uh, the dispatch told me the sheriff is there. Go ahead. He's going to knock on your door in just a moment. I heard a knock on the door. I looked out the window. It was the sheriff. I opened the door. She was gone. She had left. I, to this day, firmly believe had I opened the door or had she got into the apartment, I feel like she would have killed me. And I don't care if that sounds extreme or overdramatic, but in that particular situation, she was psychotic. She was most definitely high off her fucking rocker. And there's nothing that I wouldn't have put past her to do to me. She had a restraining order against her and she showed up anyway. So luckily because of the 
recording of what they had of me calling 911 and hearing what she was doing on the other line and hearing her say, Leah, you want me to come in. I'm trying to get to you kind of a, you know, conversation or not conversation, but just the thing she was saying and hearing her like obviously try to break down the door. That was enough for them to issue a warrant for violating the restraining order. So thankfully, they were able to arrest her. However, they arrested her, then they released her, and then they booked her in a psychiatric hospital because they thought she was having some sort of psychotic break. While she was there, they drug tested her and realized she was fucking high. So they detoxed her and then they released her because they said her symptoms were most likely because she was under the influence. So then she was back out in public. And this was maybe within just a couple weeks time. And guess what she did? She came right back to the campus where I worked at and I'm sitting at work one day and someone walks in and says, so-and-so's here for you. And I thought, what the fuck? Oh my God. I walked outside and said, get the fuck off this property. I'm calling the sheriffs. And she left. And I called the sheriffs and I reported that she came. But of course, by the time they showed up, they had no proof that she was there and she had already gone. So they did nothing about it the second time. So at this point, I couldn't stay there anymore. She wasn't going to leave me alone. So one night I was on my way back home to my apartment and I didn't see a car. I didn't see headlights. I was always looking over my shoulder. At this point, I had made arrangements to move away off campus, far away, nowhere near where I was. And I didn't want her to find me. I was going to be somewhere safe with someone safe. And that was my safety plan. I had put it in motion. I needed to escape. She, I didn't see her. And so I walked home and I needed to leave my apartment for a few minutes to go get some stuff. And there were, there was like a gym on campus and a pool and some other things. And there were some resources in a kitchen and stuff like that. So there were, there were places for me to go besides just the work portion of it. So I left for just a few minutes and I went back to my apartment and I get a phone call from a coworker, one of my coworkers. And I answer the phone. And he said, I've got an emergency situation here with your ex. And I'm thinking, what the fuck are you talking about? She had followed him because she, I guess, had been parked somewhere and watching me. But maybe her headlights were off. Maybe she was parked in a different spot. I don't know, but I didn't see anything. And when I left, she watched me leave my apartment. And she, a few minutes later, watched a car leave the driveway and thought I was in the car. So what did she do? She followed them. She followed this person down the road, down the freeway, almost to their house and physically assaulted them. She got out of the car, accused me of being in the car, which I wasn't in the car. And physically assaulted them. Can you believe that? 
She physically assaulted somebody because she thought I was with them. She was fucking crazy. So that initiated an investigation. We had detectives come out. They interviewed me. They interviewed my coworker. They took statements and reports from both of us. They interviewed her. She tried to say it was the opposite situation that this person followed her and confronted her and she was defending herself and her story didn't even make sense. It's like, what are you even talking about? Why would somebody just randomly follow you and assault you just because they don't even know you? Like it's, you know, nothing she said or did made, made sense. So they issued her a citation for providing a false statement and a warning that if she did anything else that had to do with me or went anywhere else near the campus where I was and where I was living and located, that she was going to go to jail for a very long time. We ended up getting a uh, no trespassing order against her so that she couldn't come within a certain distance of the campus. So that was also really helpful to protect her from being, because it was a public area. People could come in and out all the time. And so it was definitely helpful that she was, we were able to do those things against her. However, I needed to get the fuck out of there. And at this point in time, I still didn't have any resources to go back home. Um, but I did have somewhere safe to go. So I made a safety plan. I talked to the director on the campus where I lived who agreed to let me stay in his home, which was also on campus. In the middle of the night, I took a bunch of stuff out of my apartment. And I'm talking this apartment I lived in was a teeny tiny apartment, like a teeny, teeny, tiny, small apartment. I took all of my belongings. I put as much as I could into the trunk of my car. I took the rest of it inside with me. And I stayed there for a few nights. And I felt safe there because number one, I tried to maneuver at times when I knew she wouldn't be watching because most of the time she knew my schedule and when I was working. And so I would try to do things in the daylight where I could see like where she was and and not at night where I couldn't see in the shadows or across the street where she might be hiding. So I did things in the daylight. I would check. I would have people drive down the road to see if they saw any cars parked in any of the turnouts anywhere. And if they didn't see her, I would move my things. Like it was very strategic. I was escorted back and forth every night. I even had a couple of decoys <laughs> try to act like they were me going into my apartment while I went across to the house. And when it came the night for me to leave, it's exactly what I did. I had someone come to my to the house where I was staying and I had them watch while I gathered my suitcase and all of my stuff, the trunk in the back of the car was already filled with as many other of my personal belong- belongings as possibly as it possibly could have been. And I got in the car. It was like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And I drove all the way down the street, all the way to the interstate. And they followed me on the freeway for probably about an hour 
just to make sure that she was nowhere in sight and that she didn't follow me. And I drove all the way through for about 12 hours, 12 to 14 hours until I got to my final destination. And that's literally how I escaped. I had to flee in the middle of the night. That was the only way I was going to be able to escape from her and her psychotic ways and her drug addicted ways. That was it. There was no other way other than to literally flee for my life in the middle of the night. Now, it's important for me to just note that over this period of time, I've just I've just shared with you in a very broad way the biggest things that happened in my relationship with this person. But over this period of time, she had convinced her friends that I was cheating on her. Like I said, all of those different emails and accusations and things that she would come up with, she shared them with other people in a way that she would make them believe her. Um, She tried really hard to tarnish my reputation and who I was as a person. She tried very hard to make me not credible and not trustworthy. So even after I left her, I was now settled into a different state, a totally different place, far, far away from her. She still continued to try to engage me. However, because she didn't have access to me directly, she began to contact other people and accuse them of being me. So she would find people's profiles on Facebook and on the internet that had resembling features to me. And she would contact those women and accuse them of being me. And when they would respond, what the hell are you talking about? Who are you? She would then go in on them about how I was hiding. She accused me of being a shapeshifter. If you know anything about that, that's completely bizarre. And she would accuse me of changing my appearance to look like them, but still resemble myself. It got to the point to where she actually stalked a woman online who, again, had resembling features. But if you put the two of us side by side, we clearly do not look like each other. But she stalked this person. She found out where this person worked. She followed her for home from work one day and she broke into her house and she didn't attack this person, but she again accused her of being me of trying to get away from her. The person called 911, reported it to the police. They came out. Uh, Thankfully, she was able to get a restraining order against her, but that's how far she would go to try to find me, to try to like make me exist in her world. It was really, really scary. She's a psychotic person. Even all these years later, um, there were many years that I would check to see if she was trying to find me, if she was around, I would Google her. I would try to search her out to see if she was still looking for me. Um, just because I wanted to stay alert for a long time, 
I still felt like I had to watch my back. And she would talk about me on her Facebook as if I was still relevant in her life. She would talk about me as if I was trying to communicate with her. She would talk to her friends about me. I remember several years ago, I reached out to one of her friends who at one point was kind of a mutual friend um, when I was, when we were dating. And I said, Hey, you know, so-and-so has completely lost her mind. I just want to be left alone. I don't want anything. I haven't wanted anything to do with her. You know, she needs help. Something's wrong with her. She clearly needs to be sober, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he apologized for her behavior. And then like 30 minutes later, came back uh, and messaged me and told me how sadistic and, and insane I was and how dare I act this way and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, clearly you talked to her and she said some bizarre shit or showed you some bizarre shit and, you know, you're buying into her story. So she was just really insane. And I don't even know to this day if she's still obsessed with me. I don't know if she still talks about me or if she's still looking for me, but I've chosen to do the best that I can to close that chapter. People like that are so scary because they're capable of anything. She was capable of anything. If she was capable of going to the extents of what she went th- went to to try to keep me under her control, then she was capable of anything. If she broke into a stranger's house and accused that person of being me, she was clearly capable of anything. So you you can't put it past people like that to not do really crazy, scary shit. So I do want to talk really quickly about um, abuse, drug abuse and domestic violence. According to addictioncenter.com, all types of domestic violence originate from one person's desire for control and power over another. Addiction and substance abuse is linked to domestic violence in a strong way. When someone is inebriated from drugs or alcohol, they are likely to lose control of their inhibitions. Being under the influence of any substance greatly increases the chances of abusive behavior. Exactly. She had no ability to make rational decisions. She was not in her right mind. Uh, It also says when a person abuses drugs, the chemicals in their brain are rewired to seek out the substance despite any future consequences of their behavior. This can result in irrational, violent, or controlling behavior within a relationship. Addiction and domestic violence share a number of characteristics such as loss of control, continued behavior despite negative consequences, addiction and abuse tend to worsen over time, and both conditions involve denial or shame. Statistically, nearly 80% of domestic violence crimes are related to the use of drugs. So it's important to know these things because substance abuse leads to other things. Substance abuse is not just about the person having an addiction or being unable to control things. That is linked to abusive behavior. A lot of abusers use drugs. You know, my very first abuser used all sorts of different kinds of drugs. He was on everything you could possibly think of at some point in time. This person was clearly addicted to methamphetamine and methamphetamine fries the shit out of your brain. So it's important to know the red flags. It's important to know when to seek help. And it's important to understand that safety planning and 
protecting yourself are so, so, so incredibly important. I can look back today and see all of the mistakes I made and know all of the things that I should have done differently, you know, but at the same time, it is what it is. I went through what I went through. Thankfully today, fast forward all of these years, you know, over a decade later, my relationships are healed. I am a healed person. My children are thriving. I'm in a beautiful marriage. You know, all of these things are are where I'm at now in my life. But that point in my life was so scary. It was such a scary time because the person was delusional. She was not in her right mind. She was not willing to let me go. And she was just painting me out to be this completely horrific person. She isolated me. It was such a whirlwind in a short period of time. I really am lucky that I did get out alive. There are hotlines and resources available for anybody who is impacted by domestic violence and substance abuse. You can always visit the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence at ncadv.org. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at ndvh.org or 1-800-799-SAFE. There's also the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can find them at samhsa.gov or call 1-800-662-4357 if you need health and resources regarding substance abuse and mental health. Remember, 911 always, if you are in fear for your safety or your life, do not hesitate to call for help. You can also call and text locally to 988 for crisis and suicide resources and hotlines. There are people out there willing to listen, to help you, and to guide you along your road to safety. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Unspoken Cycle. I know it was a long one. I know it was jam-packed full of a lot of information. But you know what? That was a situation for me that started out in a way that felt very normal and very real and ended in a way that felt very horrifying and very much like I real, really was living in a movie. Like the, that was not real life for me. So it's important to be aware that these things can happen and we need to watch out for the red flags and the people who are out there who are not there for our benefit and who are not there to protect us. We've got to protect ourselves, ladies. We have to see the red flags. We have to acknowledge the red flags and we've got to take care of our safety. Please, as always, feel free to reach out to me at theunspokencycle at gmail.com. You can always hit me up on Facebook at The Unspoken Cycle, and on Instagram at The Unspoken Cycle. I'm here to listen, and I'm here to help in any way that I possibly can. If you have not yet, please like and subscribe. And thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all of the support and encouragement along my healing journey as well. I'm here for you. Don't forget that. As always, we'll get through this together. Join me next week for part four of my unspoken story. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Unspoken Cycle with Leah Vaughn. Remember to embrace your female within and connect with our community at theunspokencycle.com. Until next time, take care.